Hello, this is Pastor Nathaniel, and you're listening to the Edda Talk for the Eddie Walk Podcast. Here you'll find messages meant to edify and encourage God's people in the maturity, purity, and unity that comes from following Christ. From devotional thoughts to sermons from our Sunday morning services, my prayer is that the time you spend listening to this podcast will help you grow closer to our Lord and also lead you to loving others like He loves us. Let's get right to it. Good morning, everyone. So I have the honor of being asked to share a message with you all this morning. Um, And this one's going to be a little bit different. So I wanted to explain why beforehand and kind of how it's going to go. So you've probably noticed that by now I have a pretty specific preaching style that I typically use. Right? I give you an outline at the beginning. We kind of fill the outline in together. And I start with a joke. But this week I don't have a joke and I don't have an outline. Um, and the reason for that is I had been asked a couple weeks ago to give a testimony at women's retreat. And I sat down to write wasn't totally feeling doing just a testimony, so it wound up being this testimony slash sermon thing. Um, (laughs) And I was asked at the retreat if I would share it again here the next time I filled in. Um, So Nathaniel asked me to fill in on the third, which some people didn't already know, and we kind of felt God leading in that direction. So instead of a joke, I want to extend an invitation to all of you. Um, I am going to be real and raw with you this morning, and I am about to lay bare my heart and hope that God uses what he's been telling me to speak to you as well. Um, And I would like to invite you to let me, and most importantly, God, speak to the real and raw you. So if you could set aside any distractions in your mind, Um, any barriers, any fear, if you would just think of your real and raw self, let it be there, and let God touch you there in a special way. Um, I know it's not easy. (laughs) Being vulnerable isn't usually fun. Uh, Believe me, I am nervous. (laughs) Even though I've already given this message before, I'm nervous again. Um, So we're in this together, and... I know that God wants to speak to who we really are and to what we're really experiencing. So before we dive in this morning, let's start with a prayer. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to gather together and come before you as a family. This is an incredible blessing, and please help us never take it for granted. We have a special request this morning, Father. May your Holy Spirit reveal to each of us that which is real and raw within us. We give you permission to search our hearts, and we lay them bare before you. Open and soften our ears, hearts, and minds to hear what you have for us this morning. We ask that your Holy Spirit would reveal to each of us whatever you would speak to us this morning. Thank you for being our Father, taking us in your embrace, and speaking into our deepest pain, insecurities, and discomfort. Strengthen me as I speak, and use me as you will for your greater purpose this morning. Thank you for what you're about to do. 
We wait in hopeful expectation for you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, I am going to do something fun today, however. And that fun thing is I'm going to tell you something that not a lot of people know about me. Um, And the fun fact is that I love personality tests. So I like the BuzzFeed ones where it's like pick a couple cookies and we'll reveal your best character trait and like goofy ones like which Disney princess are you? Um, But I especially love the scientific ones. So like the Myers-Briggs, has anybody heard of that? All right, a couple of you. How about the Enneagram? All right, a few. So... I actually like personality tests so much that when I was in my honors class in college, I actually took two classes where we looked at personality types and how they would influence our leadership style and how to lead when there's different personalities in a room and in the group. Um, So anyway, I'm really nerdy about that stuff. I highly recommend you check it out if you haven't already. Um, And if you do know the typologies... I am an INFJ in the Myers-Briggs, and I am a type 1 in the Enneagram. Basically, that means that I'm introverted, but I love people. I think a lot, mostly constantly. (laughs) Um, I am a perfectionist in every sense of the word. Um, The phrase, you're your own worst critic, was practically invented by my personality type. Um, I empathize easily, and my main driving factor is a sense of morality and responsibility. Um, On the negative side of things, that means that my personality type lends itself to finding two things very unsettling. First thing is making mistakes, and the second is not having at least some level of control, especially in an unfair situation. Um, So the realization that despite my best efforts, I can't fix anything, it's a mess, and it feels like a big mistake, and I can't do anything to make the scenario better is a very hard pill to swallow. And usually that couples with a tendency to be pretty self-critical. So you can only imagine how I felt in 2020 when I couldn't fix the pandemic. It was impossible for me to act like I wasn't grieving two losses that happened just before the pandemic. I had to leave my college and my friends with very little warning. Um, And I'll spare you a list of other problems that I faced last year. Some of those, some of you probably know what those struggles were and you came alongside of me for that and I thank you. But suffice it to say, my lockdown looked pretty sad, and all of my INFJ type 1 buttons were pushed. Scratch that. They weren't pushed, they were slammed. (laughs) Like this, several times. Um, I felt admittedly irritated by the fact that none of what was going on in my life was fair or fixable. The days were hard, and the nights were long. I wrestled with grief, betrayal, anxiety, and its physical effects, and more. All I could do was press on while hoping and praying that things would get better. 2020 was hands down the worst period of my life. 
I won't give all of the details today, but maybe someday we'll catch up in the fellowship hall or over coffee or something, and I'll share more then, just due to the personal and recent nature of it. Um, But with not much else to do in lockdown, I found myself on the internet a lot, especially when it snowed the first day of summer vacation because all of my online classes were done and I had nothing to do but watch the snowfall in May, which was kind of depressing. So I went on the internet and I saw people finding new hobbies, doing wonderful projects, writing music, getting organized, meeting up with people for socially distanced walks. They seemed to have their lives together and that they were largely enjoying some downtime. For those people, it seemed that 2020 was as perfect as their Instagram posts. Sure, there were masks, but minor details. In fact, one good friend told me on the phone that she really enjoyed her time in lockdown, that she grew in ministry and she had some time with family and got to find herself and a little bit more of what she was called to do. And I thought that I should have been experiencing the same thing. Not out of jealousy or wishing that my friend would have had a miserable 2020, but because I and my situation weren't as perfect as we ought to have been. Either by society's standards or by the high standards that I set for myself. Because by my standards or my personality standards, which, whichever you choose, I wasn't even close to perfect. I was a mess. Truth is, I wanted to scream into a pillow and pound my fists on the mattress, not make funny dancing videos like all the other college students were doing on TikTok. I wanted a good cry and a hug, not another Zoom meeting to fake a smile through for an hour. I wanted to work harder, not come to terms with the fact that I was helpless to change anything. I wanted to be perfect, and it was very hard for me to say and finally accept that I was broken, and so was my situation. In fact, it was so bad, there were times people would come up and say, Brianna, how are you? And I'd say, oh, I'm good. How are you doing? And then it occurred to me one day, "Why, why am I doing that? Because clearly I'm not good. And why do I keep making people think that I am? I wanted to be instantaneously healed and not look for strength just for the next moment. I wanted happiness, not grief. I wanted peace, not anxiety. I wanted to be like the other productive, perfect young women I saw on Instagram, not an overtired, messy-haired college student eating ungodly amounts of macaroni and cheese after midnight. And yes, I did that way more often than I care to admit. (laughs) And I wonder, although your life is different than mine, maybe you're not an INFJ or a type 1, but can you relate to what I'm trying to describe? That feeling of being broken and hating it and longing to be perfect or at least whole again. But what does perfection really look like? And what do we do when we're broken? That's the question that I'm going to address this morning. 
So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Genesis chapter 2. I'll be kind of jumping around between chapter 2 and chapter 3, so if it seems like there's a whole bunch of verses missing, uh, I did that intentionally. I don't have some new strange translation. Um, Let's start with um, verse, let's see here. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and care, take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me. And I ate. In Genesis, we see that God made humans for a unique purpose. They are different than all of the other animals and creatures. And we see that Adam needed somebody to have relationship with. We're meant to be people in relationship with each other and in relationship with God. And 
on top of that, God calls us to do something in particular. And the blessing that we see throughout Genesis that God gives Adam and Eve is be fruitful and multiply. Meaning that we have a job to build God's kingdom. For them, it was strictly in the biological sense. For us, it's also in a spiritual sense of bringing people into the church. We have this this twofold, well, threefold job. Relationship, stewarding God's creation, and building his kingdom. So it's really no wonder that the enemy prioritized getting God's image bearers off the rails. And in chapter 3, we read that the serpent, the devil, tries to convince Eve to eat from the one tree that God declared to be off-limits. And the serpent does two very interesting things. First, he tries to make Eve stumble and forget God's words by asking, did God really say that? Secondly, he strongly implies that Eve is not perfect the way God made her to be. If she wanted to be like God, who is, you know, absolute perfection, she had to eat the fruit. God told Eve not to eat it. He told both of them that if you eat from this tree, it will bring death. Do not eat it. The enemy said, no, no, no. When you eat that, your life will begin. Of course, we know that God was right. The devil lied. And even Adam's disobedience resulted in terrible consequences for all of humanity. Consequences that we still feel today. But what's interesting is that thousands of years later, the enemy still uses the same sneaky tactics to derail the children of God. He wants to attack and hinder the kingdom of God. And one way to do that is to distract and cripple God's kids. Because if we know who we are and what our purpose is, and if we acknowledge God's power, we're unstoppable. When children are little and in healthy environments, they believe that they are special, and they fully embrace their identity as princesses, princes, knights, kings, queens. Right? The costumes that they put on to play with, they're just a formality. They know who they really are. When believers are in a healthy place, they recognize that we are indeed the children of God, and we fully live in that purpose and conviction. Emotionally healthy children don't need to prove their worth. They know that they are loved just as much during a tantrum or when they're mud-drenched bringing frogs into the house as they are when they're happy, helpful, scrubbed clean, and dressed up. Spiritually healthy believers know that God loves them just as much in their best moments as he does in their worst moments. And nothing will ever change the amount of love he has for us, not even the least iota. So since the enemy wants to stop us from fully living in our God-given purpose, he attempts to disrupt our confidence, just like he did with Eve. Are you really fearfully and wonderfully made? We might hear him ask. Are you sure that you're not a rough draft in need of editing? Did God really call you his beloved child or just his servant? Are you sure he still loves you after this or just that other thing? 
And frankly, it should make us angry that the enemy would try to attack us that way. And not just us, but all of the people that we love. And after listening to the enemy's lies for a while, we stop believing that we're fully loved by God already. And we try to start earning his love and his attention. Just like we do with our friends, bosses, partners, you name it. We get stuck in shame too. And so quickly this whirlpool starts to form in an attempt to disrupt our water walking. And I sort of got stuck in that whirlpool last year. I was trapped fretting over what society and my own perfectionism unreasonably demanded of me. And somewhere in the fog of it all, I lost sight of the truth. Praise God for his patience, because he's had to rescue me from that whirlpool several times. Like I said, I'm prone to it. (laughs) Um, Let me tell you one of those rescues that significantly altered my perspective on things. A few years ago, when I was 15... I was in my bedroom praying, and I was, as usual, (laughs) upset that I wasn't as perfect as I wanted to be. And I said, God, I don't get it. I try so hard to be this perfect Christian. I'm not as good as I think that I ought to be. You know, I'm still struggling, and I'm really, really, really annoyed with myself. So I got done venting. I'm like, okay, breathe. Now I can go back to the rest of my day. But God had a different plan. As I was going toward my bedroom door, I heard him audibly respond. And he said, Abriana, if you are going to get behind the pulpit and tell others about me, then you had better learn to understand my grace. And that hit me like a brick. (laughs) Let me tell you. But it's what I needed to hear. Because it gave me the nudge to explore and internalize what I already knew in my head. That grace is the unmerited favor of God. We don't earn his love or his attention, his affection, forgiveness, or anything else. We can't make him change his mind. Everything that he gives us flows from his perfect heart. When when he purchased us with the blood of his son, he didn't keep the receipt to return us in case we didn't live up to expectations. We are his, and he will always love us, period. And that is a truth that we need to reconnect to. Because the reality is, we're not perfect. We're wonderful, yes, but we're not perfect. We're imperfect, hurting people living in an imperfect and hurting world. And we tend to ask God to fix us, not use our brokenness. We sing that God is a potter and that we are the clay, but while we're on the pottery wheel, we constantly demand that he smooth out our bumps and paint over the scars we've acquired. And one day he will. That's a promise that we can look forward to. But he's been teaching me that he can do far more with my authentic self than he could ever do with the most perfect version of myself that I could put up. You see, we wouldn't put a candle in a box and expect it to light the room. Jesus gave this illustration. He said that we'd put it on a stand to give light to the whole house. And if I could take that a little bit further, we wouldn't put the light in a box and put that on the stand, would we? 
We'd pick a clear vessel, or we'd pick one of those beautiful candle holders that have holes in it that let the light come out and dances on the walls and all of these beautiful shapes. And yet we try to cover those holes. And two things happen to the light. Either one, it won't benefit anybody, or two, that light will be snuffed out. And you'll be left with an empty box with a cold, melted candle inside. You see, when we ask God to use us, we may not come right out and say so, but we have a list of terms and conditions. Because the minute that he asks us to be vulnerable with someone, we say, oh, no, 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 not not that. You see, what I was trying to say is that lady at the grocery store yeah, if you wanted me to pray for her, that'd be great. You know, she could just walk up and ask, hey, how's it going? Could you pray for me real quick? You bet I'd do that. Bible study? Sure, I'll bring people to Bible study. You got it. You want an extra smile at work? Okay. But you cannot seriously ask me right now to show them my broken places, how I struggle. You can't be serious. And the sad thing is, is that it's in those moments where God's love and power can be most evident in our lives. And that's what other people need to see. And do you know why we shy away from doing that? Shame. The same reason that Adam and Eve hid when they were naked. And if I might take a verse slightly out of context this morning, when God shows up and He knows they're hiding. And Adam explains why. God says, who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you should be ashamed? Who told you to keep that part of your story quiet? Who told you not to talk about that? Who told you not to share what I've done for you? Who told you not to share the power of the gospel and how it has played out in your life? Who told you to keep your mouth shut? Because I know it was not me. Imagine what the Bible would look like if its human authors covered their holes. What would we think if the gospels left out the part that James and John had such a short temper that Jesus nicknamed them the sons of thunder? What would we think if they scrub-cleaned Paul's past so that we didn't know that he used to persecute Christians, that we didn't know he used to call himself the chief of sinners? What if we didn't know that Thomas doubted, that David committed adultery, that Jonah refused to go to Nineveh and ran the other way? What if we didn't know that Elijah battled a major bout of depression, Gideon hid and was hesitant, What would we do if those stories were gone? Because those are what remind us that they are people like us. And that's what gives us hope, is that if God can use these broken people, I wonder if he can use me too. And I make it my mission now to be vulnerable with others whenever it's appropriate in hopes that my story declares that I'm an imperfect person in the hands of a perfect God. 
And I pray that that simple truth will encourage others that they can approach God and be welcome there, that they don't need to have it all together, that my need to put up this perfect image for my own pride doesn't hinder somebody else from coming to God with an open heart. And it doesn't burden them in any way. Because frankly, our stories and our lives aren't about us. And honesty is a surefire way to point people to God. And sometimes I just need to be taken by the shoulders and say, Abriana, it is not about you. Get over yourself. That this is about God, whether you like it or not, in this scenario, point to him. Because brokenness can pave the way for the brightest expressions of God's glory. You know, I think about Jesus. Growing up, there was one phrase in the New Testament that I thought was very odd. And I wrestled with it for a long time. And that is that when Jesus was preparing his disciples for the crucifixion, he told them a specific phrase. The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And my initial instinct was to say, "Uh, not exactly Jesus. You see, glory comes on Sunday when you rise from the dead. And there are billions of believers throughout history ringing church bells, coming in their Sunday best, all excited to celebrate your victory and your life. That's the glory part. But we know that Jesus is never wrong. So my answer couldn't work. So I wrestled with it some more. And somewhere in my teens, I came up with the idea that he said that was a time he would be glorified because that he knew that we would have crosses as a special symbol in our faith, that you would have the crucifix and the cross, and that's what he would come to be associated with, and that once the gospel started spreading and there was that association, people would glorify him, and that was that. But I can tell you that I was very wrong. And it's all because I had a backward view of glory. Just like how Jesus tends to shift what we know and take it upside down. He did the same thing here. Because if you think about the crucifixion, right? Jesus went through pure torture. The American Medical Journal, I think, if you want to look it up, they actually, back in the 1900s, I think mid to late, they wrote an article about the specifics of crucifixion and what they had learned, and how someone would die, and all the processes that would go on through the body underneath that torture. But even without that medical journal, we know that one of Jesus' closest friends betrayed him to death. Not just betrayal, betrayed him to death. And one of the three people that he trusted the most, in fact, the one that he had chosen to lead the church when he was gone, denied that he ever met him. He had been mocked by soldiers, beaten on, spit on, lied about by the religious leaders. He was given a completely unfair trial and condemned to death, not because anyone thought he did anything wrong, but because Pilate wanted to appease a crowd that was shouting for his death. And that was the same crowd 
that had welcomed him into Jerusalem with palm branches and said, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. So as a side note, the crowd can change their mind quickly. So don't follow the crowd. Follow God. And on top of that, there's this aspect of Jesus is 100% God. So it's his creation condemning him to die for nothing wrong that he had done. He was whipped, beaten, stripped of his clothing, given a crown of thorns, and had his hands and feet nailed to splintered boards so that he would die an agonizing death. In fact, crucifixion is where we get the word excruciating from. And if that wasn't enough, the guilt, the shame, and the punishment for every sin that the human race had ever concocted or committed and would ever concoct or commit was placed on him. Well, Jesus was 100% God. He was also 100% human. He had never felt a pain that intense. He had never felt shame before. He had no reason to. He had never prayed as hard as he had in Gethsemane. He'd never been so troubled that he sweat blood. Isaiah prophesied that he would be crushed for us, and Jesus himself told the disciples that his body was broken and his blood poured out for us. And you know what? If you were to read that story and leave it there, you would think it's over. Jesus has hit rock bottom. There is nothing left for him to do but to suffer the agony. And maybe someday God could possibly make things right. But we know that's not what happens. And in fact, in the moments of his pain and anguish, I dare say that he brought more glory to the Trinity than he had at any other point of his life on earth. Because he showed us how far love would go. When his arms were stretched out and bleeding, he testified that the arms of God were open to embrace the wayward sinner. When tears poured down his face, he proved that he can truly empathize with us. He proved that he knows what it's like to pray for God to do something different, to find some way to get around this issue, but have to go through it. He proved that he can come alongside us in our lowest moments and promise that he understands exactly how we feel, not just because he can read our minds and know what's in our soul, but because he went through those same things himself. And when we look at that picture of Jesus on the cross, all that we can do is marvel at the God who would love us that much. He utilized his suffering and used it to point us to the Father. He was completely right. It was indeed the time that he was glorified, because in that moment, his immense character shone most brightly when he was most broken. Here's the difficult part. We are called to take up our crosses and follow him. And I imagine that that includes a call to let God use our brokenness to bring him glory, just as Jesus did. We can't put the cross in a backpack. We have to actually be nailed to it and suffer it and let people see it. Jesus' crucifixion was public. Not done in quiet, where it would be easier or more comfortable. So if we're to take up our cross and follow him, 
doesn't mean that we necessarily need to air our dirty laundry all over Facebook multiple times a day. But it means that we need to be open and we need to be honest. And I'll tell you right now, last year was terrible for me. I may not have said so at the time, and it's not because of anything you had done or made me think. You guys were great. It was my own pride. And I was hurt with a combination of pain, grief, and anxiety that I could have never imagined up until that point in my life. When I saw the writing on the wall and knew that my world was about to implode from coronavirus and other things in my personal life, I spent a lot of nights in Gethsemane, as it were, begging God to take it all away from me and provide a better alternative. And I know that God didn't send the trouble my way, but it was a cross he let me bear. I had to go through the trial. I had to go through that metaphorical crucifixion. And when I realized that I would have to take up that cross, I had a decision to make. And it's a choice that I still have to make daily. And it's a choice that I realize will be with me until the day I die. And it's a choice that all of us have, whether we know it or not. Because we have three options to deal with suffering. We can idolize it, minimize it, or utilize it. If we idolize it, we wear it like a cloak. We say, it's hopeless, that's it. It's with me forever. This is all there's ever going to be. So I might as well just sit here with it. If we minimize it, and stuff it into the junk drawers of our mind and go on with life as normal, it's going to come back out like a volcano. And also like a loan. I'm a college student, so I had to study the loan process a little bit. Do you know what happens when a loan goes unpaid? It comes back, demands repayment in full, plus interest. And the same thing happens when we don't acknowledge our pain. But if we utilize the pain, we say, God, here's my brokenness. It's hurt, it's hard, and quite frankly, I hate it. But if you can get glory from this, you can have all of it. If you can somehow take these scraps that I've got, if you can somehow take my broken heart, and if you can get for one second any ounce of glory, would you do that? Folks, God is faithful to do that. We know that Jesus was a carpenter. And let me tell you, he can build using any and all materials. And frankly, I had no idea how God would possibly use what I went through last year. I hoped that it was a thing. I had someone tell me, you know, God will use it in your ministry someday. And I remember looking skeptical And they said, well, you'll be able to relate to other people. I thought, well, that's great. But does that really bring God glory, though? So I had to hand it over to him. And when I was asked to write this message, I didn't know what I was going to say. But I made the decision that I was going to lay it all out there and let God do with it whatever he wanted to do with it. And so I didn't have to wind up waiting a decade down the road to see any benefit. It took 12 months for God to say it's time. 
I'm ready to use that brokenness for other people. And I like to think that when the disciples sat down, when the Bible authors sat down, as the Holy Spirit was bringing verses to their minds to write down, and they pick up their pen and the scroll to start writing, suddenly that thought comes up, that thing of what they had done, what they had experienced. And the pain and the shame came flowing back. But the Holy Spirit stopped what he was doing and said, write that down. That thing, write that down. I want it in there because that's the thing that people are going to read thousands of years from now, and that verse is going to change their life. Your story is going to influence them to look at me. Write it down. It's where we say, God, use what I have. So, child of God, I pray that you always remember how loved and understood you are by our Heavenly Father. And I pray that you never forget that you were created for a specific and vital role in the kingdom of God. The kingdom was not complete without you. Creation was not complete without you. And I pray that you receive discernment to recognize and rebuke the lies that the enemy tries to tell you that you should should stay quiet. I pray that you have the humility to move forward and to show others your brokenness and how God is working in it. And I pray that if you came here today with any kind of grief, brokenness, or imperfection that you've been wrestling with, I pray that you would lean into grace, the unmerited favor of God, and ask God to somehow use your situation for his glory. Don't don't add any attachments to it. Sometimes it even feels better if we don't. Just say, God, do something. And he will. He doesn't let anything go to waste. And I pray that through that experience, you would rejoice in God's goodness and his grace. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If this podcast is helpful to you, please rate us on iTunes or like our page, Springwater Church the Nazarene on Facebook. Have a great day and Lord bless.